Part One, Chapters Eleven through Fifteen of the Voyages of Doctor Doolittle by Hugh Lofting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, My Schoolmaster Polynesia. Well, there were not many days after that, you may be sure, when I did not come to see my new friend. Indeed, I was at his house practically all day and every day so that one evening my mother asked me jokingly why i did not take my bed over there and live at the doctor's house altogether after a while i think i got to be quite useful to the doctor feeding his pets for him helping to make new houses and fences for the zoo assisting with the sick animals that came doing all manner of odd jobs about the place so that although i enjoyed it all very much it was indeed like living in a new world I really think the doctor would have missed me if I had not come so often. And all this time Polynesia came with me wherever I went, teaching me bird language and showing me how to understand the talking signs of the animals. At first I thought I would never be able to learn at all. It seemed so difficult, but the old parrot was wonderfully patient with me, though I could see that occasionally she had hard work to keep her temper. Soon I began to pick up the strange chatter of the birds, and to understand the funny talking antics of the dogs. I used to practice listening to the mice behind the wainscot after I went to bed, and watching the cats on the roofs and pigeons in the market square of Puddleby. And the days passed very quickly, as they always do when life is pleasant, and the days turned into weeks, and weeks into months, and soon the roses in the doctor's garden were losing their petals, and yellow leaves lay upon the wide green lawn, for the summer was nearly gone. One day Polynesia and I were talking in the library. This was a fine long room with a grand mantelpiece, and the walls were covered from the ceiling to the floor with shelves full of books, books of stories, books on gardening, books about medicine, books of travel. These I loved and especially the doctor's great atlas with all its maps of the different countries of the world this afternoon polynesia was showing me the books about animals which john doolittle had written himself my i said what a lot of books the doctor has all the way round the room goodness i wish i could read it must be tremendously interesting can you read polynesia only a little said she be careful how you turn those pages don't tear them no i really don't get time enough for reading much that letter there's a k and this is a b what does this word under the picture mean i asked let me see she said and started spelling it out b a b o o n that's monkey reading isn't nearly as hard as it looks once you know the letters Polynesia, I said, I want to ask you something very important. What is it, my boy? said she, smoothing down the feathers of her right wing. Polynesia often spoke to me in a very patronizing way, but I did not mind it from her. After all, she was nearly two hundred years old, and I was only ten. Listen, I said, my mother doesn't think it is right that I come here for so many meals, and I was going to ask you— Supposing I did a whole lot more work for the doctor, why couldn't I come and live here altogether? You see, instead of being paid like a regular gardener or workman, 
I would get my bed and meals in exchange for the work I did. What do you think? You mean you want to be a proper assistant to the doctor, is that it? Yes, I suppose that's what you call it. I answered. You know you said yourself that you thought I could be very useful to him. Well... She thought a moment. I really don't see why not. But is this what you want to be when you grow up? A naturalist? Yes. I said. I have made up my mind. I would sooner be a naturalist than anything else in the world. Huh. Let's go speak to the doctor about it, said Polynesia. He's in the next room, in the study. Open the door very gently. He may be working and not want to be disturbed. I opened the door quietly and peeped in. The first thing I saw was an enormous black retriever dog sitting in the middle of the hearth rug, with his ears cocked up, listening to the doctor who was reading aloud to him from a letter. What is the doctor doing? I asked Polynesia in a whisper. Ah, the dog has had a letter from his mistress, and he has brought it to the doctor to read for him, that's all. He belongs to a funny little girl called Minnie Dooley, who lives on the other side of town. She has pigtails down her back. She and her brother have gone away to the seaside for the summer, and the old retriever is heartbroken while the children are gone, so they write letters to him, in English, of course, and as the old dog doesn't understand them, he brings them here, and the doctor turns them into dog language for him. I think Minnie must have written that she's coming back, to judge from the dog's excitement. Just look at him carrying on. Indeed, the retriever seemed to be suddenly overcome with joy. As the doctor finished the letter, the old dog started barking at the top of his voice, wagging his tail wildly and jumping about the study. He took the letter in his mouth and ran out of the room, snorting hard and mumbling to himself. He's going down to meet the coach, whispered Polynesia. That dog's devotion to those children is more than I can understand. You should see, Minnie. She's the most conceited little minx that ever walked. She squints, too. Chapter 12. My Great Idea Presently the doctor looked up and saw us at the door. Oh, come in, Stubbins, said he. Did you wish to speak to me? Come in and take a chair. Doctor, I said, I want to be a naturalist, like you when I grow up. Oh, you do, do you? murmured the doctor. Huh, well, dear me, you don't say... Well, well, have you, uh, have you spoken to your mother and father about it? No, not yet, I said. I want you to speak to them for me. You would do it better. I want to be your helper, your assistant, if you'll have me. Last night my mother was saying that she didn't consider it right for me to come here so often for meals, and I've been thinking about it a good deal since. Couldn't we make some arrangement? Couldn't I work for my meals and sleep here? But my dear Stubbins said the doctor laughing you are quite welcome to come here for three meals a day all the year round i'm only too glad to have you besides you do do a lot of work as it is i've often felt that i ought to pay you for what you do but what arrangement was it that you thought of well i thought said i that perhaps you would come and see my mother and father and tell them that if they let me live here with you and work hard that you will teach me to read and write you see, my mother is awfully anxious to have me learn reading and writing. And besides, I couldn't be a proper naturalist without, could I? Oh, I don't know so much about that, said the doctor. It is nice, I admit, to be able to read and write. But naturalists are not all alike, you know. For example, 
This young fellow Charles Darwin that people are talking about so much now. He's a Cambridge graduate, reads and writes very well. And then Cuvier, he used to be a tutor. But listen, the greatest naturalist of them all doesn't even know how to write his own name, nor to read the ABC. Who is he? I asked. He is a mysterious person, said the doctor. A very mysterious person. His name is Long Arrow, the son of Golden Arrow. He is a Red Indian. Have you ever seen him? I asked. No, said the doctor. I've never seen him. No white man has ever met him. I fancy Mr. Darwin doesn't even know that he exists. He lives almost entirely with the animals, and with the different tribes of Indians, usually somewhere among the mountains of Peru, never stays long in one place, goes from tribe to tribe, like a sort of Indian tramp. How do you know so much about him? I asked. If you've never even seen him. The purple bird of paradise, said the doctor. She told me all about him. She says he is a perfectly marvellous naturalist. I got her to take a message to him for me last time she was here. I am expecting her back any day now. I can hardly wait to see what answer she has brought from him. It is already almost the last week of August. I do hope nothing has happened to her on the way. But why do the animals and birds come to you when they are sick? I said. Why don't they go to him if he's so very wonderful? It seems that my methods are more up to date, said the doctor. But from what the Purple Bird of Paradise tells me, Long Arrow's knowledge of natural history must be positively tremendous. His speciality is botany, plants, and all that sort of thing. But he knows a lot about birds and animals too. He's very good on bees and beetles. But now tell me, Stubbins, are you quite sure that you really want to be a naturalist? Yes, said I. My mind is made up. Well, you know, it isn't a very good profession for making money. Not at all, it isn't. Most of the good naturalists don't make any money whatever. All they do is spend money, buying butterfly nets and cases for birds' eggs and things. It is only now, after I have been a naturalist for many years, that I am beginning to make a little money from the books I write. I don't care about money. I said. I want to be a naturalist. Won't you please come and have dinner with my mother and father next Thursday? I told them I was going to ask you, and then you can talk to them about it. You see, there's another thing. If I'm living with you and sort of belong to your house and business, I shall be able to come with you next time you go on a voyage. Oh, I see, said he, smiling. So you want to come on a voyage with me, do you? Aha! I want to go on all your voyages with you. It would be much easier for you if you had someone to carry the butterfly nets and notebooks, wouldn't it now? For a long time the doctor sat thinking, drumming on the desk with his fingers, while I waited, terribly impatiently, to see what he was going to say. At last he shrugged his shoulders and stood up. Well, Stubbins, said he, I'll come and talk it over with you and your parents next Thursday. And, well, we'll see, we'll see. Give your mother and father my compliments and thank them for their invitation, will you? Then I tore home like the wind to tell my mother that the doctor had promised to come. Chapter 13. A Traveller Arrives The next day I was sitting on the wall of the doctor's garden after tea, 
talking to Dab Dab. I had now learned so much from Polynesia that I could talk to most birds and some animals without a great deal of difficulty. I found Dab Dab a very nice old motherly bird, though not nearly so clever and interesting as Polynesia. She had been housekeeper for the doctor many years now. Well, as I was saying, the old duck and I were sitting on the flat top of the garden wall that evening, looking down into the Oxenthrope Road below. We were watching some of the sheep being driven to market in Puddleby, and Dab-Dab had just been telling me about the doctor's adventures in Africa, for she had gone on a voyage with him to that country long ago. Suddenly I heard a curious distant noise down the road towards the town. It sounded like a lot of people cheering. I stood up on the wall to see if I could make out what was coming. Presently there appeared round a bend a great crowd of schoolchildren following a very ragged, curious-looking woman. What in the world can it be? cried Dab-Dab. The children were all laughing and shouting, and certainly the woman they were following was most extraordinary. She had very long arms and the most stooping shoulders I have ever seen. She wore a straw hat on the side of her head with poppies on it, and her skirt was so long for her it dragged on the ground like a ball-gown's train. I could not see anything of her face because of the wide hat pulled over her eyes, but as she got nearer to us and the laughing of the children grew louder, I noticed that her hands were very dark in color and hairy like a witch's. Then all of a sudden, Dab-Dab at my side startled me by crying out in a loud voice. Why, it's Chi-Chi! Chi-Chi, come back at last! How dare those children tease him! I'll give the little imps something to laugh at! And she flew right off the wall down into the road and made straight for the children, squawking away in a most terrifying fashion and pecking at their feet and legs. The children made off down the street back to the town as hard as they could run. The strange-looking figure in the straw hat stood gazing after them a moment, and then came wearily up to the gate. It didn't bother to undo the latch, but just climbed right over the gate, as though it were something in the way. And then I noticed that it took hold of the bars with its feet, so that it really had four hands to climb with. But it was only when at last I got a glimpse of the face under the hat that I could be really sure it was a monkey. Chi-Chi! for it was he, frowned at me suspiciously from the top of the gate, as though he thought I was going to laugh at him like the other boys and girls. Then he dropped into the garden on the inside, and immediately started taking off his clothes. He tore the straw hat in two, and threw it down into the road. Then he took off his bodice and skirt, jumped on them savagely, and began kicking them round the front garden. Presently I heard a screech from the house, and out flew Polynesia, followed by the doctor and Jip. Chi-chi! Chi-chi! shouted the parrot. You've come at last! I always told the doctor you'd find a way. However did you do it? They all gathered round him, shaking him by his four hands, laughing and asking him a million questions at once. Then they all started back for the house. Run out to my bedroom, Stubbins, said the doctor, turning to me. You'll find a bag of peanuts in the small left-hand drawer of the bureau. I have always kept them there, in case he might come back unexpectedly some day. And, wait a minute, see if Dab-Dab has any bananas in the pantry. 
Chi-Chi hasn't had a banana, he tells me, in two months. When I came down again to the kitchen, I found everybody listening attentively to the monkey, who was telling the story of his journey from Africa. Chapter 14. Chi-Chi's Voyage It seems that after Polynesia had left, Chi-Chi had grown more homesick than ever for the doctor and the little house in Puddleby. At last he had made up his mind that by hook or crook he would follow her, and one day going down to the seashore he saw a lot of people, black and white, getting onto a ship that was coming to England. He tried to get on, too, but they turned him back and drove him away, and presently he noticed a whole big family of funny people passing on to the ship, and one of the children in his family reminded Chi-Chi of a cousin of his with whom he had once been in love. So he said to himself, That girl looks just as much like a monkey as I look like a girl. If I could only get some clothes to wear, I might easily slip onto the ship amongst these families, and people would take me for a girl. Good idea. So he went off to a town that was quite close, and hopping in through an open window, he found a skirt and bodice lying on a chair. They belonged to a fashionable black lady who was taking a bath. Chi-Chi put them on. Next, he went back to the seashore, mingled with the crowd there, and at last sneaked safely on to the big ship. Then he thought he had better hide, for fear people might look at him too closely. And he stayed hidden all the time the ship was sailing to England, only coming out at night when everybody was asleep to find food. When he reached England and tried to get off the ship, the sailors saw at last that he was only a monkey dressed up in girls' clothes, and they wanted to keep him for a pet. But he managed to give them the slip, and once he was on shore, he dived into the crowd and got away. But he was still a long distance from Puddleby, and had to come right across the whole breadth of England. He had a terrible time of it. Whenever he passed through a town, all the children ran after him in a crowd, laughing, and often silly people caught hold of him and tried to stop him, so that he had to run up lamp posts and climb to chimney pots to escape from them. At night he used to sleep in ditches or barns or anywhere he could hide, and he lived on the berries he picked from the hedges and the cob nuts that grew in the copses. At length, after many adventures and narrow squeaks, he saw the tower of Puddleby Church, and he knew that at last he was near his old home. When Chi-Chi had finished his story, he ate six bananas without stopping and drank a whole bowlful of milk. My, said he, why wasn't I born with wings like Polynesia so I could fly here? You've no idea how I grew to hate that hat and skirt. I've never been so uncomfortable in my life. All the way from Bristol here, if the wretched head wasn't falling off my head or catching in the trees... Those beastly skirts were tripping me up and getting wound round everything. What on earth do women wear those things for? Goodness, I was glad to see old Puddleby this morning when I climbed over the hill by Bellary's farm. Your bed on top of the plate rack in the scullery is all ready for you, said the doctor. We never had it disturbed, in case you might come back. Yes, said Dab-Dab. And you can have the old smoking jacket of the doctor's, which you used as a blanket, in case it is cold in the night. Thanks, said Chi-Chi. 
It's good to be back in the old house again. Everything's just the same as when I left. Except the clean roller towel on the back of the door there. That's new. Well, I think I'll go to bed now. I need sleep. Then we all went out of the kitchen into the scullery and watched Chi-Chi climb the plate rack like a sailor going up a mast. On the top he curled himself up, pulled the old smoking jacket over him, and in a minute he was snoring peacefully. Good old Chi-Chi, whispered the doctor. I'm glad he's back. Yes, good old Chi-Chi, echoed Dab-Dab and Polynesia. Then we all tiptoed out of the scullery and closed the door very gently behind us. Chapter 15 I Become a Doctor's Assistant When Thursday evening came, there was great excitement at our house. My mother had asked me what were the doctor's favorite dishes, and I had told her spare ribs, sliced beetroot, fried bread, shrimps, and triacle tart. Tonight she had them all on the table waiting for him, and she was now fussing round the house to see if everything was tidy and in readiness for his coming. At last we heard a knock upon the door, and of course it was I who got there first to let him in. The doctor had brought his own flute with him this time, and after supper was over, which he enjoyed very much, the table was cleared away and the washing up left in the kitchen sink till the next day. Then the doctor and my father started playing duets. They got so interested in this that I began to be afraid that they would never come to talking over my business. But at last the doctor said, Your son tells me that he is anxious to become a naturalist. And then began a long talk which lasted far into the night. At first both my mother and father were rather against the idea, as they had been from the beginning. They said it was only a boyish whim, and that I would get tired of it very soon. But after the matter had been talked over from every side, the doctor turned to my father and said, Well now, supposing, Mr. Stubbins, that your son came to me for two years, that is, until he is twelve years old. During those two years, he will have time to see if he is going to grow tired of it or not. Also, during that time, I will promise to teach him reading and writing, and perhaps a little arithmetic as well. What do you say to that? I don't know said my father shaking his head you are very kind and it is a handsome offer you make doctor but i feel that tommy ought to be learning some trade by which he can earn his living later on then my mother spoke up although she was nearly in tears at the prospect of my leaving her house while i was so young she pointed out to my father that this was a grand chance for me to get learning now jacob she said you know that many lads in the town have been to the grammar school till they were fourteen or fifteen years old tommy can easily spare those two years for his education and if he learns no more than to read and write the time will not be lost oh, the goodness knows she added getting out her handkerchief to cry the house will seem terribly empty when he's gone i will take care that he comes to see you mrs stubbins said the doctor every day if you like after all he will not be very far away well at length my father gave in and it was agreed that i was to live with the doctor and work for him for two years 
in exchange for learning to read and write, and for my board and lodging. Of course, added the doctor. While I have money, I will keep Tommy in clothes as well. But money is a very irregular thing with me. Sometimes I have some, and then sometimes I haven't. You are very good, doctor, said my mother, drying her tears. Oh, it seems to me that Tommy is a very fortunate boy. And then, thoughtless, selfish little imp that I was, I leaned over and whispered in the doctor's ear. Please don't forget to say something about the voyages. Oh, by the way, said John Doolittle, of course, occasionally my work requires me to travel. You will have no objection, I take it, to your son's coming with me? My poor mother looked up sharply, more unhappy and anxious than ever, at this new turn, while I stood behind the doctor's chair, my heart thumping with excitement, waiting for my father's answer. No, he said, slowly, after a while. If we agree to the other arrangement, I don't see that we've the right to make any objection to that. Well, there surely was never a happier boy in the world than I was at that moment. My head was in the clouds. I trod on air. I could scarcely keep from dancing round the parlor. At last the dream of my life was to come true. At last! I was to be given a chance to seek my fortune, to have adventures, for I knew perfectly well that it was now almost time for the doctor to start upon another voyage. Polynesia had told me that he hardly ever stayed at home for more than six months at a stretch. Therefore, he would be surely going again within a fortnight. And I, I, Tommy Stubbins, would go with him. Just to think of it, to cross the sea, to walk on foreign shores, to roam the world. End of Part One